I want you to hit me as hard as you can. By now, most movie fans are familiar with the name Pliskin. Call me Snake. Genre master John Carpenter's 1981 sci-fi action thriller Escape from New York is rightfully considered a classic, with an iconic anti-hero that successfully separated star Kurt Russell from his Disney kid persona. And like so many of the entries in John Carpenter's career, it was also not an easy movie to make. With a long and grueling night shoot, and all the challenges of trying to replicate a future New York City on a modest budget. Take a trip to the burned out Big Apple and find out what the fuck happened to this movie. By 1980, John Carpenter had earned a degree of creative freedom thanks to some considerable box office success. 1978's Halloween was a slasher smash, eventually banking $70 million on a minuscule budget of $300,000, making it one of the most profitable independent movies of all time. After a brief detour to television with Elvis, featuring Kurt Russell as the king of rock and roll, Carpenter had another horror hit with The Fog, which rolled into theaters collecting $21 million on an investment of around $1 million. After demonstrating box office reliability and a skill for transforming low budgets into big thrills and bigger profits, Carpenter was able to make one of his dream projects, Escape from New York, a script he had actually written several years earlier. He was originally inspired by the 1974 Charles Bronson revenge thriller Death Wish. Not so much the concept of a civilian taking the law into their own hands, but in how the movie depicted New York as a kind of gang-infested jungle, and he wanted to apply that to a science fiction setting. Another influence was the work of sci-fi author Harry Harrison, particularly the book Planet of the Damned, about a young hero sent to save a world bent on self-destruction. Thanks for watching Joe Blow Videos. If you enjoy our shows, please like and subscribe, and click the bell to be notified when new videos go live. Now, back to the show! Carpenter had written Escape from New York after making his feature directing debut on the low-budget sci-fi comedy Dark Star. But at that time, no studio was interested, finding the script too unconventional and violent and the concept of Manhattan as the country's only prison just too grim. Years later, Carpenter would admit his earlier draft was saturated with the pessimism of the Watergate era. So he enlisted his friend Nick Castle, better known as the shape himself, Michael Myers, to inject his own skewed sense of humor into the script, like the hilarious ending swap of the president's critical piece recording. Carpenter was also a huge fan of westerns. The repeated line, I thought you were dead, but I heard you were dead, is directly borrowed from the 1971 John Wayne cowboy movie, Big Jake. I thought you were dead, Mr. McCandles. While Escape from New York is technically a sci-fi action movie, Carpenter considers it a western at its core, in that it follows a lone outlaw who defies both authority figures and criminals. Avco Embassy Pictures, who had funded The Fog, would provide the cash for Carpenter to make the movie. Although the initial plan was for Carpenter to make the Philadelphia Experiment, about a time-traveling Navy destroyer. But when script issues brought that experiment to a halt, they turned their focus to rescuing the president from the maximum security penitentiary of New York in futuristic 1997. With around $6 million to work with, Carpenter united with other past collaborators like producers Deborah Hill and Larry Franco and cinematographer Dean Cundy. Halloween's Dr. Loomis, Donald Pleasance, would play the captured president, President of what? described as an unholy union of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. Adrienne Barbeau, who was Carpenter's wife at the time, would appear as Maggie, 
the girlfriend of Harry Dean Stanton's valued engineer convict, Brain, a role originally cast with Warren Oates before he became ill. Other minor parts would be filled with Carpenter regulars Tom Atkins, Charles Cyphers, and George Buck Flower. To play the lead role of S.D. Snake Pliskin, decorated World War III veteran turned career criminal, the studio wanted an established screen tough guy like Charles Bronson, Chuck Norris, or Clint Eastwood, all of whom Carpenter considered too old. Another actor the studio approached was Tommy Lee Jones, who had starred in the TV thriller The Eyes of Laura Mars, based on one of Carpenter's other scripts. Jones may have been born grizzled, but he passed on the opportunity to play Pliskin. He'd have to wait until 1986's Black Moon Rising to star in another story from the mind of John Carpenter. The director was dead set on casting Kurt Russell as the cynical ex-Special Forces soldier after forging a relationship with the actor while making Elvis. Although Russell had been pursued by Dino De Laurentiis to star in 1980's Flash Gordon, at that time he was still mainly known for his family-friendly Disney filmography. But eventually the studio relented, and not only did Russell score the role, it was his suggestion to include the trademark eye patch as part of his character. Also joining the production would be Oscar winner Ernest Borgnine as Cabby, and music legend Isaac Hayes would play the primary villain, the infamous Duke of New York. The Duke of New York, eh, number one? The big man, that's who. Lee Van Cleef, the calculating commander of the United States Police Force, was probably best known from Sergio Leone westerns, but he was actually a childhood hero of Carpenter's from the alien invasion movie It Conquered the World. Joe Alves came on board as production designer, however it was not his experience on Jaws or Close Encounters of the Third Kind that most excited Carpenter, but his earlier work animating the monster from the id in the sci-fi classic Forbidden Planet, another of the director's childhood favorites. The production's first major challenge was finding a suitable New York to escape from. While the actual Big Apple was, at the time, basically a crime-ridden hellhole, shooting there was out of the question, as it would be prohibitively expensive and logistically impossible. Alves and Carpenter scoured the country in search of a financially feasible location that could approximate the architecture and skyline of the famous city, eventually settling on St. Louis, Missouri. St. Louis had not hosted a major film production in over a decade and welcomed the production with open arms. A severe fire had gutted several blocks of prime urban real estate, making it the perfect location for the movie's decaying metropolis. City officials essentially gave the production free reign to turn off streetlights, set fires, and shut down up to 10 blocks at a time to transform it into the ruins of 1997 Manhattan. For the remains of the president's crashed plane, Alves was visiting an airplane graveyard in Arizona searching for the movie's Air Force One when he was told of a decommissioned DC-8 jet that was conveniently for sale back in St. Louis. After purchasing the plane, his crew cut off the sections they needed for the scene and moved them to a vacant downtown lot under cover of night, skipping the whole pesky permit process. St. Louis also happened to have a deserted railway station that could serve as the movie's version of New York's Grand Central complete with a derelict train. The location was in such rough condition, Carpenter and Alves didn't even have to dress it up to make it seem sufficiently post-apocalyptic. For the movie's fictional 69th Street Bridge, the mind expanse where the climactic pursuit takes place, St. Louis's abandoned old Chain of Rocks bridge was used after the production purchased it from the government for one dollar. Alves built a fake wall on one side where the president would make his escape. Although it was obviously a bargain, the bridge itself proved dangerous as it was literally falling apart and had a strict weight limit for equipment. Crew members occasionally found themselves stepping right through the crumbling ground. 
Filming on Escape from New York began during a humid August heat wave, with some nights hitting 100 degrees. So hot, the asphalt was melting. Swarms of insects tormented the cast and crew as they filmed near the Mississippi River. The shoot that had been planned for three weeks would stretch past 50 days, exhausting everyone on the production. Barbeau constantly pumped Carpenter full of vitamins and herbal remedies to try and help maintain his energy levels during the rigorous shoot. Carpenter later commented that after going from dusk till dawn for two and a half months, it started to feel like he'd never see the sun again. Kurt Russell also recalled one time he was preparing for a scene alone and came across a group of tough characters, exactly the type you might find in a desolate city neighborhood at 1 a.m. Fortunately, he was in the full Pliskin costume, complete with submachine gun, which was apparently intimidating enough to prevent any hostilities. The star would instead experience hostilities when filming the gladiator clash after he's captured by the Duke. For Snake's gargantuan opponent, a professional wrestler named Ox Baker was hired. Unfortunately, Baker had never worked on a movie before, and both Russell and his longtime stunt double Dick Warlock found themselves legitimately trying to dodge and deflect blows from the towering adversary. After one particularly savage take, Russell asked Baker to dial it down a notch and wrapped him on the groin just to show he meant business, which achieved the desired effect. Russell would also get his revenge with The Killing Blow, a stunt performed with an actual spiked baseball bat, which is about as old-school analog as it gets. Baker had a thick pad on the back of his head that Russell would have to accurately strike, which, understandably, made the large man quite nervous. But luckily, Snake's lack of depth perception was not an issue, and he safely nailed the target. As with Russell taking ownership of Pliskin's appearance and gruff Eastwoody personality, Carpenter allowed the cast to get creative with their characters, expanding on them as they saw fit. Isaac Hayes came up with a facial twitch that only occurs when dealing with Snake. It was Donald Pleasance's idea to wear a long blonde wig as part of his humiliation while captive. Actor Frank Doubleday, who plays freaky henchman Romero, added the wild hair and pointy teeth on his own. The backstory of Maggie's long silver fingernails was that she used polished and sharpened tin to turn her hands into lethal weapons. Sadly, she never gets an opportunity to demonstrate this in the movie, and instead is mostly seen blasting thugs with Snake's Smith & Wesson. However, Carpenter's flexibility and spirit of collaboration did not extend to the dialogue. In that aspect, the director was a stickler for the written word. Harry Dean Stanton had a habit of improvising, which proved a source of occasional frustration for Carpenter. For the musical sequence, Carpenter and Nick Castle initially wanted the chorus line to perform the Ethel Merman staple, Everything's Coming Up Roses, but couldn't secure the song rights. So they substituted a jaunty, if morbid, tune about coming to the prison of New York. Nick Castle did the choreography for the performers, while Carpenter himself led the band, joined by Dean Cundy and several other crew members. While most of the movie's New York was portrayed by St. Louis, one brief scene was shot on location, and that would also prove to be a challenge. Carpenter needed to capture Liberty Island, the headquarters of the movie's fictional militaristic police force. The city was initially hesitant due to security concerns after a terrorist bombing at the site just a few months prior. There was also some resistance to the idea of New York as a vicious penitentiary, but the city eventually gave permission for the helicopters flying past the Statue of Liberty, a sequence Carpenter and editor Todd Ramsey cleverly stitched together with the expanded outdoor set filmed at the Sepulveda Dam in Los Angeles. The movie would require impressive visual effects to create a believable world, but in a post-Star Wars Hollywood, finding a talented team with a reasonable rate was a struggle. Not only were the established facilities outrageously expensive, but Carpenter also discovered they had inflated egos and considered themselves celebrities, which led to some unpleasant encounters. 
To realize his ambitious vision under his creative direction and budgetary limitations, Carpenter ultimately selected famously frugal producer Roger Corman and the economical expertise at his New World Pictures, where a young James Cameron was working. Carpenter was impressed by what they had accomplished with very little money on the sci-fi B-movie Battle Beyond the Stars. The New World visual effects team constructed a convincing scale model of Lower Manhattan and various size miniatures of the Gulfire Glider as it approached and landed on the roof of the World Trade Center. Another fascinating trick they employed was simulating the 3D wireframe computer graphics in the glider by building simple black boxes and lining them with grids using bright tape and then moving a camera through the environment and increasing the contrast to achieve this futuristic result. The challenges for another scene had nothing to do with special effects or coordinating big action, but rather a mundane one. Actor Lee Van Cleef had sustained a painful leg injury and had difficulty walking, and had problems concentrating on simultaneously delivering his lines while he and Pliskin navigated the corridors of the police headquarters. Van Cleef actually said it ended up being one of the toughest scenes he had ever filmed. One late addition in the process was the daytime scene of helicopters landing in Central Park, which Carpenter added to break up the movie's overwhelming darkness. It was actually shot in California's San Fernando Valley, with a background matte painting of the skyline done by none other than James Cameron. The constraints of time and budget, along with the necessities of narrative, led to the omission of some ideas, like self-lighting cigarettes that Snake would smoke. Carpenter had also wanted to include more variations of prisoner gangs on the island, like a Native American tribe that was mostly cut from the movie, but make a brief appearance dropping the glider loose from the roof of the World Trade Center. One major change was the elimination of the movie's original 10-minute opening. The sequence, filmed in Atlanta's subway system, depicted the failed bank robbery where Snake is apprehended by the police. But the scene left audiences confused during early screenings, so Carpenter just removed it entirely. He also then realized that Snake's first appearance in custody on Liberty Island was a much cooler introduction to the character. As a way to familiarize viewers with the movie's setting, a new opening animation detailing the history of the alternate future was added. This also provided another opportunity for the involvement of Carpenter's Halloween survivor, Jamie Lee Curtis, who narrates the intro in addition to voicing the announcements in the police HQ. Another scene that required clarification was the death of Maggie, whose fate on the bridge seemed unclear to one particular early audience member, who happened to be a teenage J.J. Abrams. So Carpenter and Barbeau added an extra scene of her lying on the ground, drenched with fake blood, which they filmed in the driveway of their home. While Carpenter had scored his previous movies himself, for Escape from New York, he teamed with sound designer Alan Howarth, who had previously worked with editor Doug Ramsey on Star Trek The Motion Picture. While they incorporated Carpenter's distinct synth sound, they also used one of the first drum machines ever made. The pair would collaborate on most of Carpenter's future films. Escape from New York opened in theaters on July 10, 1981. Over that summer, it collected more than $25 million to become John Carpenter's third consecutive box office success. Critics also appreciated the movie's ingenuity, atmosphere, and thrills, and a leading man playing against type. All of the challenges bringing Carpenter's R-rated high concept to screens had paid off. And, like so many of Carpenter's films, it would go on to have an enduring legacy, influencing countless other movies, stories, and games like Metal Gear Solid. In fact, its influence on the 2012 Guy Pearce thriller Lockout was so blatant that Carpenter successfully sued Luc Besson and production company Europa Corp for plagiarism and collected half a million dollars. Snake Plissken became one of the most instantly recognizable genre characters in history, and arguably Kurt Russell's most famous role. 
The director and star would reunite three more times, including another similar experience for Snake with 1996's Escape from L.A., nearly as much a remake as it is a sequel. Some plans for the character's continuing chronicles never came to pass, including a cancelled TV series, video game, and anime sequel. And so far, his adventures have only continued in the pages of comics. A remake of Escape from New York has kicked around Hollywood for nearly two decades, passing through the hands of directors like Len Wiseman, Breck Eisner, and Robert Rodriguez, with the Invisible Man remaker Lee Wannell the most recent name involved. Actors who have been attached or rumored for the new Snake over the years include Gerard Butler, Josh Brolin, John Bernthal, and Jeremy Renner. One guy who does not want the job is Kurt's own son, Wyatt Russell. Despite his family connection and resemblance, the actor has made it very clear that he has no intent or interest in inheriting the eye patch. And he does have a good point, after all, there's only one snake. The name's Pliskin. Let us know your thoughts. Leave a comment in the comments. And thanks for watching.